Welcome back to the Curdverse. I'm Lisa Kaywood, corporate functionary by day, home cheesemaker by night. In episode five back in May, I talked about how milk, and therefore cheese, is seasonal. That's a fairly short episode, just over 11 minutes, where I talked about how milk changes from one season to the next. So if you skip that one, or just don't quite remember it, I won't be mad if you go pause this episode to go listen to the other one, and then come back. So here we are at the tail end of the peak summer months. Summer vacationing is winding down, kids are back in school, and in some places, though certainly not here in the U.S. West, there is sometimes a bit of an autumnal chill in the mornings. But it's not quite the end of the summer season for dairy animals, nor for summer cheesemaking. So before those of us who are consumers rather than producers settle in for the cooler winter months, let's take a look at what makes summer cheeses unique and special. The big thing I want to talk about when it comes to summer cheeses is transhumans. Transhumans doesn't have anything to do with human beings. It refers to the practice of moving livestock from summer to winter pasture. The word, T-R-A-N-S-H-U-M-A-N-C-E, is derived from Latin, trans meaning across, humus meaning ground or soil. Transhumans is one of the oldest forms of food gathering. In fact, it predates animal domestication. Because wild animals aren't dumb. They go where the fresh food is. If they eat too much in one place, it gets to be time to move on. And prehistoric humans would follow them and hunt them as they moved. Over time, humans learned to corral them, and then how to breed them to be more docile and less skittish around humans. And finally, a few thousand years after initially domesticating certain ruminants for the sake of meat and hides, they started specifically breeding and managing for milk. In our last episode on blue cheese, we visited the little village of Hallstatt in the Austrian Alps. Let's go back there now, and back to the Bronze Age, when people first started mining salt out of the surrounding mountains. At that time, and even today, most archaeological sites in Central Europe outside of the mountains contain mostly cattle bones. And indeed, the later Greeks and Romans were fascinated by the huge cattle herds owned by their northern neighbors. But in the steep, narrow mountain valley of Hallstatt, Excavations in 1993 uncovered this very dense layer of what turned out to be mostly bones from young male pigs. The rest were some combo of sheep, goats, and cows, again, almost entirely young males. There was something else unusual about the finds. They were only partial skeletons, mainly the legs and the lower jaw, with the torso part removed. The archaeologists also found eight clay-lined pits, each large enough to hold 150 to 200 of these pig carcasses at any one time. So what's going on here? And what do all these pigs have to do with cheese? Well, you can make cheese from pig milk, but we haven't spent thousands of years breeding pigs for that purpose, so they don't produce huge amounts of it. But they did once play an important role in the cheese-making cycle. Around 160 BCE, Cato the Elder wrote a tract on effective estate management for gentlemen farmers called De Agricultura. 
In it, he writes that you should keep one pig for every 10 ewes in order to fatten the pigs up on the lactose and protein-rich whey left over from cheesemaking. You know how modern bodybuilders buy those big tubs of whey powder? Because that mostly fat-free combo of sugar, proteins, and vitamins is great for bulking up. Works for pigs, too. Now, cattle produce a lot more milk than sheep. Modern sheep produce maybe a half gallon a day, while modern so-called heritage breeds of cattle produce four to six gallons. So you can imagine you would want correspondingly more pigs relative to cattle than Cato was suggesting. When you have big herds of cattle, that means a lot of pigs, too. And isotope analysis shows that these animals came from regions all around the valley of Hallstatt. In the high pastures above the tree line, there are also small circles of Bronze Age huts and small finds of bones of a mix of very young animals. So what was happening in Hallstatt 3,500 years ago was likely this. In the late spring, as the winter snows receded, various herders would bring their animals up from the surrounding lowland valleys to the fresh pasture in the mountains, perhaps in a couple of stages, mid-level elevations earlier in the season, high pastures in the midsummer. This left the lowlands clear of grazers with plenty of space to grow grain and other crops during the summer months. Those summer months, especially May through July, are when dairy animals produce the greatest volumes of milk, and in modern times it's when the really big wheels of alpine cheese are made in sheds in the high mountain pastures. They're stored in caves, or in the case of Hallstatt, the salt mine itself, and age and solidify over the course of the summer. By the Bronze Age, there's strong evidence that pigs were being raised together with dairy animals in Italy and Greece, as Cato later described. And the finds in Hallstatt certainly suggest that the herders summering up in the valley there were bringing pigs along with their cattle, sheep, and goats, plumping them up on whey and forest forage. And then in the late summer, some of the youngest animals would be culled before the herds returned, carrying their summer cheeses along with them, again, possibly in a couple of stages, to their home regions. But the more mature animals, the one to two-year-old pigs that were found en masse in these clay-lined pits near the entrance of the salt mine, they were typically slaughtered right near the beginning of winter. As fat as a Martinmas hog is a phrase from medieval times. Martinmas falls on November 11th, and it's traditionally when you'd butcher animals you wanted to cure and preserve for the winter. By this time, the animals would have returned to their lowland homes. Archaeologists think that the pigs were slaughtered down below, and then the meaty legs and possibly bellies were carted back up in pieces up to the Valley of the Salt, where eight huge brine pits were waiting to cure them into hams for the winter. There are other foods that get preserved in brine, of course, notably cheese. So it's not hard to imagine that the brine pits were in use all summer, too, salting the wheels of cheese before they went into the cool, humid mine to age. And then in the fall, the pigs, who had been going to town on the way all summer, they got their turn in the pits, too, after a fashion. Meanwhile, the remaining sows and ruminants were down below, grazing on the stubble and other plant trimmings left over from the harvest, and dropping manure and mushing it into the now-damp, muddy late-autumn soil as they went, fertilizing the ground. This system of integrated, multi-species farming was crucial for most of human civilization, when every available calorie mattered, both for you and for your livestock and moving living animals with feet to their food was a lot easier than moving large amounts of food to animals. Sometimes entire families would go up into the mountains together, and tasks were often divided by age and gender, so often men would handle the animals, and women and younger children would process the milk. In these cases, herders and plant farmers were often separate groups. Sometimes, especially in Central Asia, they were different ethnic groups, 
who would interact at wintertime to trade animal products for grain, metalwork, jewelry, and other manufactured goods. In other regions, men and older boys would head into the mountains on their own in the summer, leaving behind their families to raise vegetables, hay, and so on on their home plots. This same basic pattern of vertical transhumance still holds in many mountainous regions across Eurasia today. Transhumance is also a widespread strategy in non-mountainous regions of the world, where the climate is too harsh or the soil too limited to support plant agriculture. These would be places like the Central and East Asian Steppe and the African Sahel at the edge of the Sahara, where people typically move north and south with the seasons, avoiding the worst cold and snow of the steppe and following the rains in the Sahel and in the desert regions themselves. Regardless of whether the animals move vertically, latitudinally, or just stay on their home turf year-round, the nature of their milk changes over the course of the year. Spring milk is low in fat and contains a lot of water. The fat content slowly rises over the course of the summer, while water content comparatively falls. The nature of the proteins in the milk shifts over time as well, with more short and medium chains in the spring and summer, and longer ones coming to the fore in the fall and winter. Summer, then, is the mama bear of milking seasons in terms of milk composition. The milk contains moderate amounts of solids, and they're the types of solids that create supple elastic curds. It's also when animals produce the greatest volumes of milk. So many summer-made cheeses are really big wheels which can age a long time, through the winter if needed and into next spring, in order to have a reliable source of protein during the cold months, when animals have little to no milk. Many of these summer cheeses are sold in three grades, depending on how long they've aged. The period of time for each grade varies by cheese type, but for example, for Swiss cheeses, it's typically around three months for the youngest, a minimum of three to six months for the middle grade, and six to 12 months or sometimes more for aged varieties. Because so many of them are meant to age for a long time, they're typically made as relatively low moisture, semi-hard to hard cheeses. Think of all the classic Swiss cheeses, Gruyere, Appenzeller, and the widely exported Emmentaler. That's the Swiss cheese with lots of interior holes or bubbles caused by a very gassy microbe. Norwegian Jarlsberg and Dutch Mazdam are Auslander clones of Emmentaler. All of these cheeses are made not just with moderate fat summer milk, but in some cases the cream is actually partially skimmed to make a lower fat and therefore lower moisture cheese that can age even longer. There are also cooked cheeses, in the sense that the milk is heated to around 108 to 110 Fahrenheit, or 43 degrees Celsius, and the curd is cut very small, and then stirred for some time in the hot way to squeeze out the remaining moisture in the curds. Comté is a similar type of cheese from the French side of the border, comparable to Gruyère, in fact sometimes it's called Gruyère de Comté, and Greek Graviera, which is made with sheep milk on Crete and cow milk on Naxos, is also in this family. In general, the summer cheeses of the Pyrenees and Greece tend to be smaller as most of them are made either entirely or in part with sheep and goat milk. But the same aging categories come into play for the all-sheep manchego as well as mixed milk iberico, for example. The reason many protected name cheese regulations specify the season in which the cheese can be made has to do with what the animals eat which affects the flavor of the milk and also sometimes the texture of the curd. I mentioned earlier that the spring milk tends to be high in water content. That's partly because spring plants tend to be high in water content. Conversely, the milk from animals eating mostly dry fodder, as in late fall or winter, produces curds that can be a bit more brittle and prone to shattering under pressure. But the big thing is the flavor of fresh pasture. 
and the flavors, of course, vary a lot from pasture to pasture, depending on the local vegetation. This is as true for cheeses made from milk in non-migrating places as it is Montaigne cheeses. French Salaire cheese made headlines earlier this summer for an unfortunate reason. For the first time since receiving protected name status in 1961, the cheese will not be made this summer. The AOC designation requires that the cheese be made between April and November and that the cows receive at least 75% of their feed from fresh pasture. And this year, due to the extreme drought that Europe is experiencing, there is little fresh pasture to be had. As one farmer told reporters, there is nothing left to eat at home. The ground is so dry, hard, that in places it looks like ashes. It's dust. He added that his cows have not been able to graze since late June. The head of the AOC Association for Salaire, Laurent Lourdes, told the press, Salaire is a seasonal cheese made with seasonal grass. That is one of the pillars of its identity. With more hay instead of grass, the body would be whiter. We would have less flavor. Our product has a certain reputation among consumers. We don't want to ruin it. These types of requirements are common in protected name cheeses, and some are even more strict. For example, Tête de Moine, a semi-hard cheese from French-speaking Switzerland, requires that the animals get all of their feed from the farm's own pastures or from adjoining communal pastures for at least 120 days during the green feeding period. Incidentally, for those who enjoy gadgets, Tête de Moine is a fun cheese because it's shaved into ruffles using a cranked circular cheese knife called a girole. Sometimes you can buy pre-shaved ruffles, though I don't recommend that as they dry out once cut. But if you find a wheel of tête de moine somewhere, you can cut the top rind off the cheese and then use a cheese knife in a circular motion around the center of the wheel to create your own ruffles. Now, most of these long-aging cheeses, though made in the summer, aren't things you're going to eat during the summer. In summer, when it's hot, what you probably want on your plate are fresh young cheeses. Mild and creamy mozzarella and burrata are classics to pair with acidic fresh tomatoes, for example. Creamy breeze are nice with strawberries. Tangy young goat cheeses are fantastic with sweet, earthy, late-summer figs. In other words, this is a time in which to enjoy the flavors of the milk itself in its primetime season. But I do have to say that mass-produced versions of these cheeses won't taste noticeably different from one season to the next. That's very much on purpose, since the value proposition of mass-produced cheeses is consistency and predictability. So this is really a time to get out and explore your local artisan cheese community. In the U.S., many states now have official cheese trails that can help guide you to amazing local finds. If you're road tripping across the country or just trying to squeeze in the last fun weekend or two before the travel season dies down, Google cheese trail for the state you'll be in and look for a list or map of featured producers. Some also list stores who distribute for local producers who don't sell directly to the public. And if you're curious about some of those high mountain Swiss cheeses, a friend of mine introduced me to a program called Adopt an Alp, which helps market cheeses made by small producers to overseas markets. I'll provide a link in the show notes. Even if you order nothing from them, it's interesting to browse through the stories of the various producers and how they make their cheeses. Oh, and those pigs I was talking about earlier? Not that common in high mountain cheese making processes today, though the famous black pigs of the Portuguese Beira Baixa and Spanish Extremadura are sometimes are. But they're still fed whey in some places that are also big on dairy, for the same reason they were 3,500 years ago. Next time we'll get into the funky cheeses, the washed rinds. Some of these, like Appenzeller, are summer cheeses that are ready by early fall. 
Others that get washed with cider or beer typically come out later in the season. Some are light and just mildly aromatic with a floral scent. Others are full-on stinky sock territory. We'll explore the full range and how to choose them. So join me again next time as we once again enter the Kurdverse. Mm-hmm.